Hey, this is John Huseman. I'm the pastor of the Ark Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope that this inspires you. I hope it builds your faith, and I hope it draws you closer to God. Enjoy the message. Go Chiefs! <laughs> it's like a smelling salt around here. Just <laughs> uh, I should save this for after, but I don't really mean that. I'm a 49er fan. Anyway, lock the doors, if you don't mind. No, I'm, I'm all on your side today. I'm on your side today. I want a rematch. Anyway, my name is Gabriel George. It's an honor to be back with you. I've been with you several times. was with you in December, for those of you who are here. Um, my goal today is that we all take ground, right? We're here to take ground. We're here to move forward. That's what January is all about, or at least it's supposed to be about. It's time to be resolute. It's time to change. It's time to take stock, inventory of who we are, where we're going. At least that's kind of the thought, the theory, that we acknowledge things, that we are contemplative, and then we assess and decide that we're going to do things a little bit differently. We make resolutions. Some of you make resolutions. Some of you don't because you found that you can be resolute, but the resolution usually only lasts a couple of weeks, and then you're disappointed because you didn't do what you thought you were going to do got a full head of steam. And usually by the end of January, we kind of go back to our normal pattern. But I want to talk this morning about changing and changing for good. God loves you. God sees you. God's working on you right now, right where you're at. It doesn't always feel like he's working, but there is a responsibility on our part to engage God, to allow God to work the way he wants to work in our lives. There are two ways to look at the work of God. There is God's will. There's God's permissive will. Everything that you see in this world is obviously a part of God's permissive will. He has permitted it. There are things that are happening on this planet that are not good. They are not who God is. They are not what God wants, but they are obviously part of God's permissive will. He has permitted it. But then there's God's ideal There's God's ways. God's ways are better than what we see on this earth. You can allow God's ways to affect and infect your life. That's why Jesus said, pray that the kingdom of God come, the will of God be done. This is God's ideal coming. And just because God is there and God is allowing things doesn't mean that that is God's best for you. You can change, you can move towards God, God's best can be revealed in your life. But you have to allow it in and you have to take steps towards it. And that's what we're gonna do today. I'm gonna preach very practically about how we change. Some of this you've heard before, but there's a difference between hearing something and doing something about it. And so my prayer today is that we would hear and do. And so before we move any further, I'd like us to pray and acknowledge that God is moving and open the door of our heart. Would you join me in doing that, please? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your good word. May your word find a lodging place in our hearts. We open the door of our heart. We allow you to speak and we ask that your will be done. We thank you for moving us forward. This is our prayer of faith in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. I was born in 1978. I'm 45 years old, born 1978. August uh, 22nd. I like cash, gift cards. Anyway, I'll give you my address after. 
Um, I always thought that I was a Gen Xer, and I am a Gen Xer. I grew up knowing, hearing, I'm part of Generation X. But a few years ago, I read an article that says that if you're born between 1977-1983, you're kind of part of a micro-generation. It's sort of a hybrid between Generation X and Millennial. They call it Zennial. You're a Zennial. And if you're born in that span, it means that you have had a digital adulthood, that you know, use, embrace technology. You weren't too old when technology shifted to adopt it, to embrace it, to make it a full part of your life. You have a digital adulthood. But it means also that you have or had an analog childhood. An analog childhood, which means you know how to work a payphone. <laughs> I just want to talk about payphones for a second. For those of you in the room that don't know about the payphone, this was our way of staying in touch with the world. When you're out and about and you didn't have a mobile phone, you didn't have a cell phone, you needed to get a hold of somebody, you had to stop. You had to park your car, you had to scrounge for a quarter. You had to put it in this machine and pick up this receiver that was so oily. <laughs> it was like a bowling ball. You had to pick up this disgusting, oily receiver and put it up to your face. And every once in a while, a mischievous teenager would take a ketchup packet and open it and squeeze it out on the receiver. And if it was nighttime, you couldn't see. So you pick that thing up and put it to your head and you get an earful of ketchup, not to mention all the disease on that receiver. You put the quarter in and you call. You had to know people's numbers. A lot of you, you don't know numbers. You don't even know your number. You just names in your phone. This wasn't the way it was. You had to know numbers. If you didn't have the number, you had to pick up a phone book. That's, we'll talk about that later. Phone book. You called home hoping someone was home. Because if they weren't home or they were outside for a second, you missed them and you missed them forever. You never talked to them again. You lost communication forever if they didn't pick up the phone. You could leave a voicemail, but they could only get back in touch with you if you waited at the payphone. So we were all around the world and no one knew where anyone was ever. No one knew. I remember getting my first mobile phone. I was, I think, a senior in high school. My parents wanted to keep tabs on me for good reason. And so they gave me a mobile phone. It didn't fit in my pocket because it was in a bag. <laughs> it was a bag phone. It looked like a, a it looked like those bags that those women in LA put their chihuahuas in. It was about that size. And there was a phone in it and you put it in your car and it had a, a cord that went to the cigarette lighter. We'll talk about cigarette lighters later. That's part of the discipleship program. Anyway, you plug that phone in and then you could make a call. Now, I was only allowed to call home and use like 10 total words because the cost per minute on those things was extravagant. Every time you picked up that phone, it was like five bucks just to say, I'm on my way home. Bye. That's all you could do. That's all I was allowed to do. I was 21 years old when I got my first phone that fit in my pocket. It was a Sony Ericsson. I didn't want a Sony Ericsson. It was ugly, but it was free. I wanted a Motorola Razor. You remember the Razor? Yeah. Does anyone have one in here? Like an old one? You, okay. Half off tithe for you, month of February. <laughs> Go fix that. <laughs> I don't think God's sanctioning that, by the way, so I wouldn't. 
I wanted a razor. I had this Sony Ericsson. I didn't really care. It was just a way to get in touch with people. I was married. I got married young. Wanted to get in touch with my wife. If she was home, we only had one phone. So I would call home. She could call me. I remember in 2000, I think it was eight when the iPhone came out. I I waited at the mall at 3 a.m. I got to the mall in Tulsa where I'm from, 3 a.m. Waited for hours and hours, nine hours, I think, till I got my phone. Waited in line because I remember seeing the ads for the iPhone and I couldn't imagine that it was as good as they said it could be because nothing was like it. I had gone from this really basic thing. They just punch in numbers and you call. There was no texting on my phone. There was nothing else on my phone, just a phone. It was an actual phone. Your phone's not a phone. It's a supercomputer. I don't know why you call it a phone. But anyway, I got the iPhone, opened it up, got in my car, looked at that thing and was blown away. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this thing is as as advertised. But I noticed too that the screen was a little bit dim. It seemed a little bit dim. It was beautiful. It was amazing, but it was kind of dim. And I lived with this phone pretty dim for a really long time until someone told me that you could go into the settings and you could adjust the brightness. My Sony Ericsson didn't have settings. It didn't have brightness features. I didn't know about the brightness setting. I didn't realize the phone came at a default setting that meant it was at half brightness. Someone told me this. I turned that thing on. I went into settings. I went to brightness and I turned it up and it was as if God was in the room. It was so bright. I was like, oh my gosh, this thing is even more incredible than you could see it at all times of the day, which is a positive. And so I have this phone now operating correctly. I had no idea that there were defaults, default settings, that it came that way. Everything that you see has a default setting. You have a default setting. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything. And he created it according to a specific design. And he called his creation good. Good doesn't just mean that it was good. Good means it was operating according to its design and function. It was properly operating. That's why God calls everything good. He called creation good. He called you good. Humankind was good. But in Genesis 3, The serpent tempted Eve. Eve ate the fruit, gave it to Adam. Adam ate the fruit and changed the default setting of humankind and creation. Sin corrupted everything. The default setting prior to God's original design was good, but sin brought death into the world and broke everything. You can see it in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Everyone who was born on the earth and has been born and will be born on this earth after Adam and Eve are born into a different default than the way God intended. The default setting of humankind is corrupted by sin. Everything is this way. But there's hope. There's hope and we know there's hope, which is why we're in this room this morning. We've come to this place because we know our hope is Jesus. Jesus alone is our hope. Romans 5.18 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. When Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, the default changed. 
But the way the default changes for you is to receive what he did. We call this in the church being born again. John 3, 3 says this, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, the Pharisee Nicodemus is asking Jesus in John 3, this question, what do you mean by being born again? Well, we know it now to mean spiritually born again. Obviously, it is not physical. Whenever we receive the gift of Christ, the love of God sending his son to the earth to live perfectly, to die on that cross, to pay the debt, to justify you, to be resurrected and to bring you back to life. You are now in Christ when you receive that, meaning everything that Jesus is, you are. Now you are justified and you are redeemed, but spiritually, you are more than a spirit. You are a spirit, soul, and body. Spiritually, the spirit of God goes into you. You have a new spirit. You are a new creation back to the original design. But you receive this gift from God and your spirit changes, but your soul and your body remain the same. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotion. And your body is how you interact with this physical world. You know full well your body did not change when you prayed the prayer. If it did, this place would not be big enough. Everyone would be in here, specifically after Christmas meals, praying the prayer of salvation so that they could have a renewed, glorified body. That day doesn't come when you pray the prayer. That day will come in the resurrection. You can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 4. Your body will go back to the original design, believe it or not. But your soul remains in default setting. There are people in this room, there are people all over the place who claim Christ, who believe in Christ, who have received salvation, who have a renewed spirit. But they don't feel saved because their spirit may be renewed, but nothing else has changed. I believe in Jesus. I have prayed the prayer, but nothing's changing. I'm still stuck. I'm stuck in a negative self-image. I'm stuck in depression. I'm stuck in anxiety. I'm stuck in addiction. Stuck, stuck, stuck. I don't have self-control. Whatever it is, I still feel stuck. And a lot of Christ followers believe and we're following Jesus, but at low levels because we remain stuck. Years ago, when I was 20, I moved into my first apartment. I put whatever I had in this van. I go to move into my apartment. The parking lot is about 30 or so yards, maybe actually 50 yards from the door of my apartment. As a 20-year-old, this was unacceptable to me. I don't know why, because I had all the strength and energy in the world, but I was also lazy in mind. And so I parked that thing and thought, this is way too far to walk back and forth. I don't know, it would have been three times because I didn't have anything, but I didn't want to do the walking. And so I'm looking around, I'm trying to figure out a way to get that van closer to my door. Well, behind my apartment was a green belt. There was no one back there, nothing back there. And I thought, I have an idea. I'll just drive the car, the van on the grass and go around back and be 10 feet from my door. That'll be easier. I'll get done quicker. And that's what I did. I went back there, drove back on flat ground in the front, got to the back. The back of the green belt was flat for a second, but then it sloped down. 
about 30 yards, it sloped down, and then it went into a little bit of a ravine and a creek. I pulled back there, I unloaded all of my stuff quickly, proud of myself, I'd beat the system. And then I get back in that van to leave. Now, as a 20-year-old, I didn't take into account the fact that vans aren't supposed to drive on ground when it had rained the day before. And so I am in that thing, and I am trying to get out. I'm trying to get out, but as I get out, the thing starts to kind of fishtail down and start to slide. It's stuck in the mud, and it's sliding down that hill. I hit the brakes. I get out. I try to grab some wood, put something under the tire to no avail. I hit the gas. The thing continues to slide down. That thing slid to be about three feet from that ravine. At this point, I jumped out and I called a friend on a landline. And I said, hey, I need your truck. He had a Dodge Ram 4x4. I called him. I said, I need you. Can you come pull me out? He came up, put that truck at the top of the hill, got a really long tow strap, hooked it to that van, and I was out in no time. I want to tell you this morning, God is a Dodge Ram. Now, if that's offensive to you, he can be a Chevy or a Ford or whatever you like. <laughs> You're a van. I'm a tow strap. This morning, I am trying to connect you to God. He will pull you out of whatever you're stuck in. The devil wants to tell you that there's something wrong with you. Your enemy accuses you all day. He doesn't just sit there. It's not necessarily that there is a physical being known as the devil. And this is true, a spiritual being who is with you. There is a spiritual being known as the devil, but he is not omnipresent. So he is not with you all the time, but he's plants seeds in your mind. And then we usually take those seeds and we roll those things down the hill till they accumulate some velocity and speed and size rather. So we adopt what he says often. He whispers to you that there's something wrong with you, that there's something broken about you, that there's something about you that this stuff doesn't work for. It's not necessarily that it's not true. It's just not true for you. He wants to keep you stuck because he's a master at trying to destroy your identity. Remember, everything that Jesus is, you are. So you're not stuck. You're just operating at a default setting. The default needs to change. So how does it change? Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You renew your mind. You go into the settings. The settings are in your mind. If you don't go into your mind, you'll never renew your settings. If you go on old settings, you live in a pattern, Romans says. It's a pattern of this world. It's a circle. You never get out of it. You create ruts in your mind, ruts in your life, ruts in your thinking. You have to renew your mind. And you do that by adopting the word of God. It says this in Romans 8, 5, and 6. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. You have to think spiritual things. What does that look like? How do I do that? How is my mind to be governed by the Spirit? I live in a physical world most of the time. 
physicality, the reality of my normal life is what I consider? What does it mean to have my mind governed by spiritual things? 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Every single thought that comes into your mind, you have to judge. You have to identify it. And if it's not from God, you have to replace it. These are three things that I see in this scripture. You have to think about what you're thinking about. You have to be aware of what you're thinking about. You have to consider what you're thinking about. Most of us just let thoughts run through our mind. I woke up this morning and for some reason, when my alarm went off, immediately I just felt just worse. As soon as my eyes open, I am flooded with thoughts of apathy, despondency, just like, I don't know what's going on. I don't feel good. I don't feel right. I don't feel loved. I don't feel like I'm living my purpose. I feel like I'm falling short. But I quickly identify my thought pattern. What am I thinking about? What's going on in my mind? I identify the thought, then I judge the thought. I judge my thoughts according to what? According to the scripture. What does the scripture say? So as I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, these thoughts are starting to run through my mind and it's happening in, 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 in milliseconds. I identify, this isn't the way God wants me to think. I am judging this thought pattern against the words of God. So then I find the thought to be lacking. This thought is not from God. I judge it. I judge it to be wanting. And then I replace the thought with scripture. In you, my God, do I put my trust. Psalm 25, one. Very simple, but I get my eyes off myself by grabbing my thought. That's what it means here in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive. We take it captive. We take it captive. You don't reject it. You grab a hold of it. You look at it, you judge it, and you replace it. This quite simply is how you take ground. This is how you change. A lot of the time we're looking for some sort of experience. We're looking for some sort of motivation. We're looking for something significant to happen. We need things to change. We want things to change. I want to feel it. I want to feel the emotion of it. I want it to feel powerful. I want it to be significant. I've done this before. I need something else. You don't need anything else but the word of God. But most of the time we fail to submit ourselves to the truth. We want what God has, but we're not taking heed, as Psalm 119.9 says, take heed thereto according to your word. Get under the word, take it seriously, it's warnings, it's instructions. We are to adopt his words. And the only way it works is if you know his words in advance. When the enemy attacks your mind, you fight back with scripture. But if you don't have the scripture, you have nothing to fight with. Whenever you know the word of God, you know how to grab hold of thoughts. You know how to identify them, judge them and replace them. This is how you change. It is very simple. 
It just means that you pay attention to this book. You write this book down on note cards, write words down, memorize those words, arm yourself with the word of God. So I close with this. Ask yourself, where are you struggling? Where are you struggling to take ground? What's difficult for you? Don't let the enemy come in and lie to you right now and tell you that there's something completely off and broken about you because it's not true. The power of God is the power of God. God's no respecter of persons. He'll do this for you like he'll do it for anybody else. If you will submit to the word of God, you will take the ground. You will change. You'll look up and go, oh my gosh, that used to be so difficult for me, but it's not anymore. I'm different. I don't have an appetite for the things that I used to run to. And the only way that happens is through the word of God and the power therein. Would you bow your heads, please? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your good word. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for truth. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord God, I thank you for speaking to us today. May our lives be forever changed because we have submitted to your word. This is possible for us, Lord, because you sent Jesus to live for us, to die on a cross for us, to pay the full price for our sin, to be resurrected for us. This morning, right where we sit, we receive him. We receive his gift. We speak with our mouth that Jesus came in the flesh, died on the cross, was resurrected. We speak it with our mouth. We believe in our heart that we are saved, that salvation was purchased on Calvary And that gift is freely given. We just have to reach out and grab it. And so I thank you for saving us. Those who are distant from God, I thank you for bringing us near. May we move towards you. May we submit to your word. May we be discipled by you, Jesus. I thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you for salvation and the power to change. And all of it is built on a foundation of incredible love. You love us too much to leave us here. And so we thank you for bringing us along and strengthening us. You have begun a good work in us and you will see it through to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Will you stand to your feet, please? As we dismiss, I'll pronounce a blessing over you and we'll go out and we'll watch the Chiefs win this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. You are dismissed.